We are in the book of the Judges. All of these sermons you can listen to online. You can subscribe via Apple Podcast, uh, searching Lynchburg City Church. You can listen to them on SoundCloud. Today is part 17. So this is the 17th sermon I've preached in the book of the Judges. And uh, if you're joining us today for the very first time, I'll get you caught up to speed as, as best as I can since you've missed the previous 16 sermons. Uh, the issue in the book of the Judges is Israel is supposed to finish the job that Joshua began during the conquest. The, the problem is, is Israel doesn't do that. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Shocking, I, I know. They're supposed to go in. They're supposed to displace the Canaanites who live in the land as God had commanded through his servant Moses and drive them out. But instead Israel's like, no, we got this, right? You know, like some of us were like, oh, it'll be okay. I'll go to this party and and nothing bad will happen. I'm going to put myself in this situation and I have enough self-control. It'll all be okay. It'll it'll all work out. And that's kind of Israel's mindset. Oh, we'll go. We'll move in next door with them. This will work out. We don't need to actually, you know, get dirty and bloody and muddy and, and drive these people out. Well, the problem is, is the influence that the Canaanites have on Israel. They turn Israel's hearts away from God. They introduce Israel to certain sins and idols in their life. And Israel, time and time again, rebels. The theme of this entire book, the book of the Judges, is the canonization of Israel. Israel's supposed to be different. Israel's supposed to be set apart. And throughout the book of the Judges, Israel, unfortunately, is like the world around them. As we saw last week, we were introduced in chapter 10 to two new judges, Tola and Jair, these secondary judges or deliverers. But once again in chapter 10, Israel again, emphasis on the word again, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And for a lot of Israel's history throughout this book, they've got this relationship with the Lord where they're holding on to Yahweh's hand. They're holding on to God's hand, right? And then along the way, they're like, oh, that's shiny, that's nice. And they reach out for these other things, whether it's idols, whether it's sins in their life. And it really, I think, in many ways mirrors our own life. I'm holding on to God's hand. I'm trying to follow God. It's like, oh, look at that. That's, there's some, some gossip. Oh, there's some lying. There's some idolatry. There's some internet pornography. I'll, I'll, I'll do both, right? Like, And of course, doesn't work that way, right? Doesn't work. That's, that's the problem that Israel runs into, the same problem that we run into oftentimes. But things get really bad in chapter 10 because the text says they forsook the Lord. Like they weren't even going to try to fake it till they make it type of thing where they're holding on to these sins and these idols and God's hand. They just completely let go of God's hands. They're like, whatever, I'm not even going to pretend right to worship God at this point. Well... God's very angry with him in chapter 10, as we saw last week. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And for 18 years, they had the paddle put to their behinds. And of course, when you have the paddle put to your behind, you don't like it. Okay? No one likes that happening. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And that's the situation they're in. And they do what they've done throughout the story of the judges. They cry out to God. God, please help us. They want God's help. They even confess their sin, which was remarkable because up until this point, they only ever just cry out to God for help. And we think maybe they're being genuine. Maybe they're being sincere. Of course, God in chapter 10 sees right through their hearts. He sees that it's just words, empty words. And ultimately he says, no. No. But God, the Philistines and the Ammonites, they're beating their tails. 
Sorry, no, I'm not helping you out this time. I helped you out here, 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 and here. This time you're on your own. You want help? Go ask the pagan gods whom you serve, right? You want help getting out of this jam? Go to that computer that you've been looking at porn on. Ask it for help. Okay? Joe paraphrase. But I'm not helping you this time. Tough love, as we saw last week. Tough love. And yet, you say, that doesn't seem very loving. I would say that, that was probably the most loving thing God could do for his people in this situation. Because as we saw last week, it forced them to really reevaluate their walk with God. And so after God says that to them, they have a real, we'd say, come to Jesus type moment. And they're like, God, you do whatever you think is fair. And in the meantime, they put away those idols and those sins, and they devoted themselves wholly and totally to the Lord. Well, they're still the Ammonite problem. Those pesky Ammonites, they're still bothering Israel. And that sets us up for today's story with the introduction of a new deliverer in Israel whose name is Jephthah. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but, but, he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. New guy. Introduced. His name's Jephthah. He's a mighty warrior, but he's got this one hang-up. His mom was a prostitute, right? She is a, a lady of the night, a Proverbs 7 woman, a strumpet. That's, that's his mom. And obviously, uh, that's going to be used against him by his brothers in this story. But he's from Gilead. Gilead. Uh, there is no tribe of Gilead. That's not a tribe. And that's where sometimes we're like, wait, he's, he's a Gileadite, so why wouldn't he be from the tribe of Gilead? Well, Gilead's actually a geographical designation per Genesis 31:48. I have a map that kind of illustrates this right here for you. You can see right there, Gilead is this region in the Transjordan area. When I say Transjordan, I mean on the other side of the Jordan, the eastern side, the right side. Uh, you can see that Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea in the south, but it goes all the way up there. And you can see that's Gilead. So there's actually, these are the Transjordan, other known as the, the two and a half tribes. And so Reuben, Gad, and then the eastern tribe of Manasseh, that half tribe of Manasseh, they all live in this region. So it's not a tribe, rather it's a geographical designation. I remember when I met Diana and we were dating, I used to tell her how her hair was like a flock of goats coming down from the hills of Gilead. It's, it's a compliment, it's a compliment. That's Song of Solomon, that's Bible right there. So that's, uh, that's some Bible flirtations and, and jokes right there. Uh, but Gilead, it's a geographical, it's a geographical region. And that's, that's the region where he's from. And you can also see on the map, to the right of Gad, that's Ammon. And they're going to be the central, really, antagonist in this story. And so we see, once again, right out of the gate, a problem. 
The problem, even though Jephthah can't really do anything about it, he was born of a prostitute. And the significance of that is the fact that this really further illustrates the moral degeneration of Israel. The moral degeneration of Israel. Think of the moral degeneration today in 2019. Okay, where I don't know how many genders there are today, um, but you see this. Uh, the world continues to look more like ancient Corinth than anything else. When I think about what does the world look like today? Oh, it looks very paganized, right? Well, that's, that's Israel. And what is his father doing hooking up with this woman, having this, this relationship with this woman? But that is just another indicator where you see the people around Israel pulling them in this direction, normalizing these things. It's not that big of a deal. That's, that's, that's kind of what happens today, right? It's not that big of a deal if you're doing X, Y, or Z. It's whatever, right? That's what's happening. You don't think that affects the church today? It affects the church big time. You believe there's only two genders? You're a bigot. That's a, that's a common theme. I'm watching a TV show the other day. This character, she, she says, yes, I only believe in two genders. And all the normal characters on the TV show, like they were just going off and just calling her a bigot. Like you, and of course, it's the world today says, listen, if you want to believe biblical worldview, that's fine. You can believe a biblical worldview. So I'm not a bigot for believing that? No, you're a bigot when you express it out loud. So as long as you don't talk about what you believe, yeah, that's fine. But if you do, you're being intolerant. That's that's the world we live in. And this is very much happening to these people here. It's not the first time. 2019, what we're experiencing in this country and in the world, not the first time. This is the Canaanization of Israel. And this is the story of the judges. These Canaanites are pulling them away from God, normalizing things that should not be normalized. And this is evident in the very fact that Jephthah is born out of this promiscuous relationship with this woman. And his half-brothers try to capitalize on it. Motivated by greed, they're thinking, if we get rid of Jephthah, we all get a larger share of dad's inheritance. So let's just boot him to the, let's boot him to the side. And, and what's, what's their basis? The basis is really on his social inferiority. He's socially inferior. This never, of course, happens in the church today. We don't, we don't treat people like this. Um, please, if you didn't realize I was being sarcastic, I was. But we do that all the time. They don't look the part. <laughs> Whatever. They can't do anything for us. Whatever. They don't, they don't talk the way they should talk. They don't dress the way they should dress. I think the church today, it should be a place of refuge for, for all people. The church today should be a place where you're able to come and not have all the answers. The church today should be a place where you can come and not have it all together. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen a whole lot. You don't look the part. You don't fit the ideal church person. Get the road, Jack. Or just stay out of our way. And unless you think I'm putting a blanket, you know, statement of uh, inclusivity and intolerance, I'm not. But Joe, they don't look the part. Joe, you see how they dress? Joe, you see how they talk? Joe, you see what they're smoking? What wonderful opportunity for discipleship. Versus, oh, that's just too messy. Ah, oh, Jephthah's born of a prostitute. That's, that's, he's socially inferior. It's too messy. I don't want to bother with him. 
Give me the clean cut guy, right? That's the guy I want to disciple. And so I think oftentimes that's how we respond when we encounter those Jephthah people that don't fit our ideal person. They're socially inferior. Maybe they're socially awkward. Maybe they are socially awkward, but what a wonderful opportunity to disciple them. Why do you think they're socially awkward? They lack social skills. Probably because no one's ever taken the time to spend the time to teach them what's acceptable and what's not, what's normative behavior. And maybe it's going to be you stepping out, you befriending them that will help them. Or you just be like everybody else and and just toss them to the side. No, that's the situation here. Jephthah's brothers, totally motivated by their own self-interest, they, they're booting Jephthah to the side. He's socially inferior. And they betray their brother. They betray him. They know better. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 12 to 22, they know this. There are laws in place that say they should be caring and showing compassion for the outcast. They're not doing it. Furthermore, Leviticus 19, to 34, very clear, commanded to love one's neighbor, let alone one's brother. And oh, by the way, this whole idea that he's not going to get to share in the inheritance, that's not even legit either because Israel inheritance law depended not upon the mother but on the father. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel, finding whatever way they can to get rid of this nuisance, to get rid of this inconvenience. So Jephthah has one thing going for him. He is a mighty warrior and he is forced to leave and he is now cut off physically from his physical home. He's cut off socially from his contacts, and he's also cut off financially. And he's forced to kind of go into exile. He's forced to make his own way. Probably doesn't make the best decisions along the way. Attracts the type of guys that you probably wouldn't want your son or daughter hanging out with. By all indications, Jephthah's a raider. He uses those warrior-like skills to his advantage, and that's probably the type of life that he's committed to. Oh, the ironic twist that's about to occur. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Jephthah no doubt has a reputation as a skilled warrior. And the leaders of Gilead, they've got nowhere to turn. They have a big problem. And it's this group of people known as the Ammonites. Their backs are against the wall. They've got to figure out a way. And they know this guy, Jephthah, might be able to be the answer to their problem. And so they go to him. They approach him. But they're very careful when they approach him to offer him a lesser role than they, that they had made available back in chapter 1018. And I criticized the people of Gilead back last week's sermon in chapter 1018. Chapter 1018, they still had the Ammonite threat, but obviously it's escalated to this point where they have to go and ask Jephthah. But the deal that they made is they said, anyone who can, will step forward, we will let them be the president, the chief, the big man, the cheese, right? Like, whatever it is... That's what you're going to get to do. But they're very careful because when they come to Jephthah, they simply just offer him the command of the military. You come, you can be the commander of the army during this battle. 
And how interesting that they're now begging the one whom they had previously rejected to come and lead them in battle, right? Oh, how the turntables turn. That was an office reference, I think. It's all right. You don't have to laugh. Sweet justice, right? Them having to crawl back to Jephthah. You know, my mom would always tell me, she'd always tell me how it was so important to be kind to people because you never know, she would tell me, when you might need their help. It's important to be kind to people. You, you, she's like, for all you know, there might be a time down the road where you're going to need their help. But I, as helpful as my mom's thinking was on that, I wanted to develop the idea even further. We should be kind to people, not simply because down the road they might be able to help us out. Not, we're not going to be kind to people simply because down the road they might be able to repay us that kindness. But we're kind to people because Christ was kind to us. Why are we kind to people? Because Christ showed us the greatest kindness. Oh, by the way, a kindness that we could never repay when he died on the cross for us. That's why we're kind to people. That's why. Because of how kind he was to us. Well, Jephthah recognizes, Jephthah's brilliant, by the way. He, he recognizes immediately that the position that these people are in, he knows. He knows that they have no other option as they come crawling back to him. He knows he holds the trump card. And so he says in verse 7, But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? And uh, drive me out of my father's house? Do you remember that? Think that happened? Yeah? It did. It, it did, in case you forgot. Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? What's interesting, as we saw last week in chapter 10, what do the people do? The people come to God. They've sinned against God, they've rebelled against God, and... Well, they're getting beat up by other nations, so they come to God. Why? Because they want God's help. They want God's help. That's all they really want. They want God to fix their problems. They're in distress. Who likes being in distress? Nobody likes being in distress. And so now they're still in distress, and they go to Jephthah. I think it's fair to say he's not their first choice. I think it's fair to say he's kind of like their plan B, their sloppy seconds. That's, that's Jephthah. But what's interesting is Jephthah's response. He says in verse 7, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? But you say, well, hold on a second. Back in verse 2, this was his half-brothers. But now he's telling the leaders of Gilead that they also hated him and drove him out. He's not missing, mixing up his facts. His Half-brothers were the one that did this, but rather he generalizes the inhumane treatment to all of Gilead. Why should he be just a mere tool to them? Why? That's his thinking. And to some degree, I don't think he's totally off to accuse them of hating him. I, to some degree, I don't think he's off to accuse them of the same things his brother did to him in verse 2. It seems to be clear because when they come to make him this offer, they don't offer him what's on their job board. Back in chapter 10, 18, it was, be our leader and you get to be the president, the chief over all the people. And they're so careful, right? Because oh, they don't have to want to have to go talk to Jephthah about this. They don't even offer him the full position. They just say, you can be our general during the battle. That's it. Uh, Jephthah, he is savvy. He knows he has them. 
He knows they have no other option. What you'll see in chapter 11 is every single character in this story is going to have an agenda. There's not a whole lot of sincerity or transparency. Every single character has an agenda. His brothers, they have an agenda. Let's get him out of here. Let's take his inheritance. The leaders of Gilead have an agenda. All right, we have to go to Jephthah, but when we go to Jephthah, let's offer him way less than what we posted on the job board back in chapter 1018. Even Jephthah himself has an agenda. He knows the leaders of Gilead are in a very difficult position. He's going to squeeze them for all they're worth. Everybody in this story has an agenda, which is unfortunate, but the sad reality of the story. So here's what happens next. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The leaders of Gilead, uh, Jephthah's called their bluff, and they know that they're going to have to pony up. And here in this verse, they do pony up. In fact, they offer him, and it says, and you can come be our head over all the inhabitants. That's not what they first offered him. That's what they boasted on the job board back in chapter 10:18. Well, they have to offer him that now. And Jephthah knows. He knows that. And they're also very careful to reinterpret the original hostile acts against Jephthah, where he was forced to flee his homeland. Notice what they say. Oh, no, we've, we've come back to you. You've come back to me. You were the one that kicked me to the curb in the first place. But they try to really soften this. Once again, everybody has their own agenda, like in this story. Some of you, you've, you've been in these situations before. The only time people write, the only time people call is when they're in distress. It happens to me all the time. It happens to me all the time, right? Joe, I need your help, right? Some of you, you, you know people like that. The only time you hear from them is when they're in distress and they're coming to you to fix their problems. They're coming to you for help. Now, obviously, I, I always love to help people because I'm a pastor and I, I love people. They say, people ask me, what's your favorite thing about being a pastor? People. What's your least favorite thing? The people. Um, that's, that's the reality of it, right? Because sometimes people can, can be like this. Doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't excuse it. But that's what's happening here with Jephthah. So, they upped their offer. They have offered him, essentially, the presidency now of Gilead. But I think Jephthah's still maybe having some trust issues. Like, I don't know what that, that's about, right? Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Okay, well, here's the deal. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. There's the collateral. God will be our judge. God will be our witness. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, verse 11, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah, he knows that these people are desperate and he is determined to get as much as he possibly can. He firms up the commitment that they made. They invoked, essentially, God to be their witness. And, and throughout this, 
the appeal to Yahweh sounds very pious, very religious. But in reality, the appeal to Yahweh, the appeal to the Lord is going to be very general, very surface level, very much a cultural recognition as Yahweh as the national deity. But make no mistake, Jephthah, yes, he was disadvantaged at the beginning of this story. At one point in his life, this guy's a killer. This guy's an opportunist, very much like Abimelech back in chapter 9, Gideon's son. He is driven by self-interest. And so we wonder, I think we wonder, is he being legit? Is his reference to the Lord sincere? With no options left, this is what happens. Jephthah's sworn in. He's made the commander-in-chief. We have this little ceremony. But even the ceremony itself that they have at Mizpah, I think it represents an insincere and even a calculated effort to manipulate Yahweh. In reality, I think Jephthah, he's not really concerned about Yahweh. Jephthah's concerned about his army that's camped at Mizpah. And the entire episode here begs the question, is, is where, where is God in this complex, complex process? Like, where, where's God? Where, where, where are the people? Are they, are they praying to God? Are they asking God for guidance? Are they asking God for discernment? Oh, by the way, I also ask the question, what is Jephthah's own relationship like with God? Will he appeal to God for help? Will he recognize the hand of God is about to be upon him? Or is Jephthah really a Canaanite at heart who's just playing the God card? Does he really love God? Well, I think only time will tell, and we will certainly revisit this later on in today's story. He's the king, essentially. He's in this chief role, and now he begins to engage in diplomatic conversations with the Ammonites to see if they can resolve this peacefully without slaughtering men. Notice verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon River to the Jabuk River and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. So here's Jephthah. He's engaged in these conversations with the Ammonites. He very much takes charge. He acts remarkably like a king, dispatches envoys, and negotiates directly with the king of the Ammonites. And then we learn. He says, what's the problem? The Ammonite king says, you guys have took our land. So restore peacefully. That's the problem I have. Um, the, the problem is, is that didn't actually happen. It didn't go down that way. And Jephthah is about to give a little history lesson, you could say. Uh, history slash propaganda lesson uh, that we'll see. Here's his response. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, verse 14, and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, 
Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then, then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, not to be confused with the Ammonites, who he's engaging with right now in conversations. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbron, and Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, not to be confused with the Ammonites, once again, who he's having diplomatic conversations with. It took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, verse 22, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon River to the Jabuk River and from the wilderness to the Jordan. King of the Ammonites, why are you coming against us? King says, you took our land. Jephthah says, that's not true. Let me give you a history lesson. Let me break this down for you. Can I throw up map number two, please? This is helpful to me. Okay. Let me explain this. Israel comes out of Egypt. They come out of 400 years in the Exodus. They're on their way to the promised land. They ask these people, you can read the story in Deuteronomy, may we please pass through? They all say no. They say, please, we won't do anything. We'll stay on the king's highway. We won't be a disruption. Please let us pass through. They say, no, you cannot. Furthermore, Sihon, and oh, by the way, Og, the king of the Amorites, though uh, Og's not mentioned here, they get a little jittery. They get a little jumpy. This Israelite presence is a threat to them. And so not only do they tell them no, but they send their armies out. Big mistake. Everything in green that you see belonged to the Amorites. When they went out to fight Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt, and they just simply wanted to pass through peacefully, and they were like, not only can you not, but we're coming out to war against you because we're just nervous. Well, big mistake. Israel ends up seizing everything you see in green as a result of that. Everything is green. This Transjordan area, which makes up the two and a half Transjordan tribes, the eastern tribe of Manasseh, uh, Reuben, and Gad. And so this is what Jephthah says. He says, listen, what you're saying isn't exactly true. Because yes, we did seize land. Everything in green we seized. But that wasn't your land to begin with. Notice the little gray block right there on the right. Ammon. That's your land. That's where you've been. We took other people's land. But we didn't take your land. So I don't know what you're crying about. That's Jephthah's response. A little Joe paraphrase on there. That's key argument number one. Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 23. So the Lord, the God of Israel, 
dispossessed the Amorites, not to be confused with the Ammonites, from before his people Israel. And are you, and are you to take possession of them? God dispossessed these people. God gave us the land, and you get to come take it right now from us? Will you not, verse 24, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Jephthah is playing on a, a, a very familiar, culturally understood concept within the ancient Near East that each nation had a national deity. And it was the deity's responsibility to care for his people, which included providing them land. And so here's the second argument. Your God, Chemosh, he gave you that land. That's your land. Our God, Yahweh, he gave us this land. This is our land. Why do you get to come take our land? You, like, he's giving them, it should be an argument that very much culturally connects with them and, and makes sense to them. Now, some people like to point out, Wait a second, Joe. Chemosh is not the chief god of the Ammonites. He's the chief god of the Moabites. Milcom. Milcom is the chief god of the Ammonites, or Molech. Two different names, same guy. He's the chief god. So it seems that Jephthah is mixing up his facts in this story. Understand, more than this being a historical lesson, this is a very political speech. Jephthah is a very savvy individual, guys. He is very much here engaging in propaganda simply to make a point. Kind of like in the same way the president today, I promise this isn't going to get political. The president today, he has an agenda. I said at the very beginning, every character in this story has an agenda. Jephthah, he's an opportunist, okay? We say maybe poor Jephthah in the first three verses. You don't need to say poor Jephthah anymore. He's got exactly what he wants. But he has an agenda. And more than this being a history lesson, this is a political speech that he's giving. So he's not concerned about the facts, right? Okay, Chemosh, chief god of the Moabites, he attributes that to the Ammonites. Why? Well, it could be for two reasons, I think, that are blended together. The Ammonites, the Moabites, they share a lot of significant cultural distinctives. In fact, you go back, you're like, where did they come from? Well, they came from Lot. Lot, Remember Lot had the two daughters. They made a terrible decision. They decided they were going to be lonely and never have kids. And they decided, well, let's get dad, let's get him drunk, and then he can have sex with us, and then we'll get to have children. That incestuous relationship, okay, that's the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so they have very much a shared cultural identity, not to mention I think it's very, I think it would be plausible that they would share even different, like, pagan practices. And probably it's entirely possible that he mentioned Chemosh for this reason and maybe the fact that Chemosh is actually considered the stronger god by both nations. But he doesn't care about that. He cares about making his point. And that's why I referenced the president. The president has an agenda. His agenda, secure the southern border. And so you hear he just blasts things on Twitter, right? We need to secure the southern border. We had 250,000 illegal aliens pouring in last month. Well, that's not actually true. Sir, it was only 109,000. I don't care, right? That's, that's what I mean, right? Once again, that's just a comment. Not taking sides here. Keeping this fair and balanced type of thing. But that's what Jeff is doing, right? He doesn't really care about the details. He's giving a political speech. He's really trying to drive his point home. And his point is, you guys all know and you guys all believe that your chief deity is responsible for giving you land. And that's your land. So why are you guys going to begrudge us if our deity gives us this land? 
And now you're going to lay claim to it? Isn't that kind of messed up? He's playing right into a very familiar cultural understanding that the people that he's negotiating with would have gotten. But here he has another argument. Here's his next argument that he gives. Verse 25. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go down to war with them? Remember, the Moabites... Ammonites are tight. It was Lot's two daughters. They come from them. But he says, Balak. Did Balak ever contend against Israel? Well, actually, the answer is yes. But Jephthah doesn't care about that. He just cares about, you know, hitting the, you know, retweeting and tweeting. That's what all the Jephthah cares about because he has a main point. He's driving home that main point. That's what Jephthah is doing. And quite frankly, I think he's very effective in doing this. So he says, Balak. Did he ever contend with Israel? Well, of course, if you remember the story, Balak does contend with Israel. He goes and hires Balaam, the prophet. Remember, had the talking donkey? Balak, the prince, hired Balaam, the prophet, to come curse Israel. He opens his mouth. Curses don't come out. Blessings come out. So, yes, in reality, yes, Balak did, in a sense, though it technically was never over the issue of land. Jephthah doesn't care, because Jephthah has an agenda. Jephthah has an agenda. And if he can solve this problem without having to go to war, he's going to do it. And if he gets the facts mixed up along the way, he doesn't care about that. He has a point that he's trying to make. And then here's his next argument and final argument. Verse 26. While Israel lived in Heshbron and its villages and in Eror and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to them. Here's his final argument. Once again, not an exact number. 300 years, just, he's just throwing out a number to make a point. The point is, is, Israel's lived in this land for a really, really long time, 300 years. And at no time in the last 300 years have you guys ever wanted to file some type of land dispute or claim. Right? Could have. You could have. It almost sounds like a Babylon Bee article. Like, Ammonites decide after 300 years they actually don't have the appropriate borders. That, that's what they're doing. And that's Jephthah. And Jephthah drives us home. Sounds really good. You had all this time and now you want to complain? After all this time has gone by, now you've got a problem. Seems kind of convenient. Jephthah does his best but war is inevitable. War is going to happen. Men are going to die. But we come to the, this end of the section as we brace for war to take place next week. And there's a lot of ambiguity in this story. A lot of agendas in this story. A lot of problems about this story. Problem number one, the people are in a hurry. They're in a hurry. I criticized the leaders of Gilead last week. 
Like, what was the problem, Joe, with the leaders of Gilead posting your jobs wanted and we're going to offer you to be the president of Gilead? What's the problem with that? The problem is that when you do that, it tends to attract the wrong type of leaders. If the right type of leaders are the servant leaders, the Christ model, that, that tends to attract the wrong type of leaders who are simply coming because they have an agenda, because they want something out of the deal. But Gilead in this story, they're in a jam. They're in a problem, and they need to get this problem fixed very, very quickly. And so as a result, we don't know if Jephthah's the real deal. And they don't know either. I'm not sure if they care. Like from their point of view, they just want the problem fixed, and they don't care how it gets done. And oh, by the way, those type of situations sometimes make things worse. I mean, that's the story of the judges, where we see more often the judges in the book of the judges ultimately contribute to the moral degeneration of life in Israel. With very, very few exceptions, almost all the judges in this book are terrible, terrible, terrible people. It's like the old saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Well, we found Jephthah. Doesn't mean you should, right? But they want a leader. And instead of looking to God, they, they put a jobs wanted advertisement up in chapter 1018. No reference to the people seeking God's counsel. No reference to the people looking to God. You know, it's a very arrogant thing. It's, it's a very much American thing. Don't need no one's help. Fill myself up by the bootstraps. I'm the self-made man. It's embraced him in our culture. See, that type of thinking, that doesn't make God look good. That makes you look good. We say, oh, look at Joe Decreon! No, don't look at Joe Decreon. Look at God. You look at somebody, oh, they're so blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. I want you to look at God. I want you to look at Christ. But they don't do that. They don't even think to do that. There's no reference of that at all. Make no mistake. I, I don't think these people have any problem talking Christianese. They don't have any problem talking Christianese. The little ceremony they had at Mizpah, they invoked Yahweh's name. You know, they, they acknowledge the, the biblical talking points when it suits them, when it makes for good publicity, or it makes for good political talking points. In many ways, they're just cultural Christians. As long as it's cool, and it can benefit them, all right, we're down. But unfortunately, these people have a lot more in common with the Canaanites. That's the problem. See, the Ammonites are the problem. The Ammonites are at our door. The Ammonites have never been the problem. Like, the problem is your heart. The problem is the sin in your life. It's because of the sin in your life that the Ammonites are at your door in the first place. You know, I, I ask people sometimes, you know, I have conversations, and I'll ask them, you know, oh, is, you know, is your friend, are, are they a Christian? And they often say, yes, but... So, oh, so-and-so in your life, are, are they a Christian? And they say, well, yes, however. And I'm always like, however what? Well, however, you, you might not know they are because, you know, they don't give any evidence that they are. They never read their Bible. They never c- 
go to church. Not that those things make someone's a Christian anyways, but they don't give any evidence. They never really act like a Christian except to describe themselves as one moment in which it might be beneficial to them. Maybe kind of like Jephthah. You know, they acknowledge God when it serves their interest. Now, I realize some of you in here, you don't, you won't know the answer to the question that I'm going to pose, okay? I'm going to pose this question. Some of you, you just met me today. That's all right. But if I had to ask, and I've used this illustration before, and I think this illustration is so powerful to what we're talking about. If I said, what is my favorite hockey team? You would respond and say what? These people, jokers. This is what happens when you, um, when you have a sermon and you don't prep people and you just you get jokers. All right, all right. Joking aside, my favorite team is, and I heard someone say it, the New York Rangers, okay? <laughs> I love it. All right. Did I talk to you before the service and tell you that I was going to ask this question? But you know the Rangers are my favorite team. Okay. You've maybe seen in this inside of my garage, you've seen the giant fat head of Henrik Lundqvist, the king. Uh, maybe you've seen that I wear a New York Rangers t-shirt, probably in like, I don't know, just about every Instagram picture that I post, whatever, right? You, you understand that. And joking aside, I think most of you get this too. And you say, how do you know that Joe loves the Rangers? And you'd say, well, it's evident. It's obvious, right? Anybody that knows Joe knows he and Diana make a trip every year in November up to Midtown Manhattan to the world's most famous arena and hopefully watch the Rangers win, though not so much these last two years, right? You know that. You know I love the New York Rangers. The very first team I ever saw, I remember winning the Stanley Cup in 1994 when I was seven years old. I was like, those are going to be my favorite team. Of course, they've never won the Stanley Cup since then, so probably a terrible decision to make them my favorite team. But you know that. It's evident and it's obvious. And so I come back to the question that I posed here. The question that we're asking about Jephthah. Does Jephthah love the Lord? And we're like, I don't know, maybe. We don't know. I ask people, does your friend or so-and-so love the Lord? Well, yes, but, or yes, however... Not even Ben, when I asked him, said, yes, he loves the Rangers, but there was no but. Even when I asked Ben, he said, yes, however. He didn't say that. He just said, yes. He knew, right? It's so obvious. And that's my point. Should it not be equally, if not more, evident and obvious in our lives, not that we love a silly game, but that we love the king of the universe? I think so. And that's what's so painful in this story, is we, we wonder... Does Jephthah love God? And we're like, I don't know. We know a couple things about him. But does, he, does he love the Lord? I was watching commencement yesterday. Congratulations. Congratulations. So some of you guys graduated. It's awesome. I, I love some of the things that, um, I think my favorite part was the things uh, David Nasser had to say. I was, I was sitting in my kitchen almost waving my hanky like, mm, yes, preach, yes. And I was so saddened though by some of the other people I regularly see, speak, in and liberty, never talk about their faith. I called my best friend, I said, you know, I, I've seen this individual speak so many times, and I've never once ever heard him talk about his love for Jesus. Never once. He talks about other people's faith, has the, you know, typical talking points. Never once have I ever heard this person talk about how much they love Jesus, because he's better, and he's more beautiful, and he's more satisfying than anything else. That's a problem. Concerns me. 
This concerns me. Does Jephthah love Jesus? Does he love the Lord? I don't know. Should it be so ambiguous? Like it's more evident for some of us when it comes to our favorite hobbies or interests, which really don't matter in the, the great scheme of things, but when it comes to something that couldn't be any more important than following the king, we sometimes say yes, but, or yes, however, or I just don't know. Jesus did not die on a cross so you could be a lukewarm cultural Christian when it suits your needs like Jephthah. Jesus did not die on a cross so you could be strategically ambiguous disciple in which it's more obvious that you love a sports team or a hobby than you do Jesus. Jesus died on a cross so that you could find your ultimate treasure, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate happiness in Him. He died so that you would find Him to be your everything. And no longer have to search for fulfillment in all the things that the world is constantly trying to offer you because bottom line, He's enough, folks. He's enough. The one who lived the life we could not live. The one who died the death we should have died. The one who paid the price we could never afford to pay. He's enough. And yet it's so sad because at the end of the story, we're scratching our heads and we don't know what type of man this guy Jephthah is. The leaders of Gilead don't know. Not sure that they care. But this all comes back to the problem. The problem because the people didn't obey God. And they've got these cultural influences around them, pulling them away from God. They're holding on to God's hand, following God, and then they're like, oh, something else, right? I want this, I want this to be my enough. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is enough. And my prayer for us is that we would not just say, Joe, I know that's true, but that we would really believe it. And that if anyone ever asked, oh, is Joe Decreon a Christian? Or whatever your name is. They'd say, yes, absolutely. Like the, the old illustration is, is that there might be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian. No mistrial, no hung jury, boom, unanimous, guilty. That's my prayer for us. That's, I think, where Jephthah misses the mark here. And that will become, spoiler alert, more obvious as we learn more about him in the weeks to come. So I want to pray right now. I want to pray, and as I pray, the team's going to come up, and we're going to sing to the king of the universe. Jesus, we love you. Lord, and I thank you, Jesus. You didn't simply just die on a cross so that we don't go to hell. You died on a cross so that we could find you more beautiful, more satisfying, more glorious than anything else. And I pray that our life would be different in this way than Jephthah's. That there would be no ambig- nothing ambiguous in our lives, no ambiguity when it comes to other people looking in our lives. That they would see us as different. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that it is clear to the world around us 
that we have no other agenda except to preach Christ crucified and to help other people see Jesus as better than anything else this world has to offer. That's my prayer, Jesus. So be our treasure. Be our treasure. Be our treasure, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.